listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship, par 72, plus another nine-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. We've got to protect our phony baloney job, gentlemen. We must do something about this immediately. Immediately, immediately. Harumph, 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 harumph. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Get the governor harumph. Harumph. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. Okay, listeners, welcome, and you are tuned in to the one, the only, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we are live in downtown Clearwater. Hey, Bill, how you doing tonight? All right, baby. Hey, anyway, hey, we got a great show for you tonight. We have a very fascinating, high-profile guest tonight. As a matter of fact, we're going to do a little bit longer interview than I normally do. So I'm really excited about this guest. This is a great show. And uh, so we kind of cut it short on some of the other little goodies that I do. But we're going to roll a couple commercials, and then we're going to get right to our guest, because I think he's waiting on the phone. Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach, located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know. You might get a free drink. That's Krabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Hey, listeners. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends Corey, Jed, and Kirk at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout.
takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and we are streamed live on the Internet. And if the camera's on, you can probably see me in here waving. Is the camera on, Bill? It is. Okay, so I'm sitting here minding my little old business and getting ready for our special guest for the evening. Oh, by the way, next week is our 100th show. So I'm not sure, but I'm working on some really cool surprises. I've actually got a couple local guys that might be sitting in with us. And, uh, uh-oh, what do you got going on there, Bill? Oh, is that what it is? Okay, how about... Yeah, <laughs> that too. But anyway, all right, so we're uh, 100. It's coming up next week, okay? So that means today is 99. So we have a very special guest. I'll keep you guys in suspense, but I'll tell you what. I hope you guys really enjoy this guy because this guy is a really, really interesting guy, fascinating guy, and I'm definitely going to have this gentleman on more than one time, okay? So he could very easily become a regular. So without further ado, let's roll the clip and let's bring our guest on. attack. Step by step, determined and unrelenting, the mighty force of the United States Marine Corps shakes the skies, the seas, the enemy island fortresses. It is history in the making as the flying leathernecks set the dramatic pace along the battle-scarred, blood-stained pathway to world freedom. You just can't bring yourself to point your finger at a guy and say, go get killed. You got enough troubles of your own for one man. Stop trying to pack everybody else's around. Schedule admission. Roger. I got a belly full of you, and I'm not buying the bill of goods you're selling. I hope you'll say, let's take off these insignia and step out in the boondocks and get it settled. But out of the turmoil of a world at war comes a romantic adventure of such infinite tenderness that it will rank with the screen's great love stories. Are we all buttoned up? Cat's out. Door's locked. All secure, sir. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And now it's time for me to introduce my special guest for the evening. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show tonight a well-respected automotive executive, author, pilot, and genuine car guy, Bob Lutz. Bob, welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Are you there? I'm here, and thanks very much for having me. That sounded like a... Was that Flying Leathernecks? That's exactly what it was, yes. The all-time classics. I imagine you're a big John Wayne fan as well. Well, actually, that was one of the movies that inspired me very strongly to become a Marine aviator. I think John Wayne probably did more for recruitment of the Marine Corps than all the recruiting sergeants combined. Oh, absolutely. And and I don't think there was anybody more American than John Wayne. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And uh, he was one of the... 
uh, few Hollywood. I think he and Ronald Reagan were very lonely as Hollywood conservatives. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Hey, let me ask you a quick question. While we're talking about uh, planes, now you still pilot planes and jets, right? Yeah, I think I'm the world's oldest pilot of a tactical military jet. Really? Do you have any planes in your collection? Well, I did have two. I had a West German Alpha jet, and um, I sold that in 08, you know, during the downturn and fuel prices going way up and so forth. But I still have a Czech-built L-39 advanced fighter trainer and light attack aircraft, which is a Czech-built aircraft and a very good airplane. Now, when you say they're a trainer, does that does that mean that they have two seats, a front and a back? It's for it's fore and aft, yeah. Okay. In, in my particular case, mine is a a weapons version, so the back seat was for the weapons officer, and uh, it doesn't have enough uh, controls and instrumentation in the back for an instructor, because they, they did both kinds. They did uh, the more benign ones for training, and then they also used them as a light attack aircraft with a weapons officer in the back seat. So it's, it's an interesting airplane. Uh, I would say performance is... Medium, you know, it was okay for the 70s, but certainly wouldn't be a frontline combat aircraft now. It's, it's, it's just right for an elderly right, retiree. Okay, but it is a jet, though, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. Back when you were, let's see, you were in the Marines, what, in the early 50s, correct? Uh, I joined in 1955. Okay. Now, the planes that you flew then, were the, did you take off and land on land, or did you fly off uh, carriers uh, well, you, you can't be a Marine or Naval aviator and not have qualified on carriers. Okay. You, to get those uh, Navy wings of gold, you must be carrier certified. Okay. How difficult was that? Now, those planes that you flew, uh, that would be post-Korean War, correct? Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, we, I, I was uh, the first generation of pilots that never went through anything like the F-9F-6 Hellcat or the F-9F-8 Hellcat or F-9F-6. Um, no, that was the Hellcat, was the 6. The, um, or the, F, the F-4U Corsair, any of the big prop planes. I never experienced those. I was always in jets. F-9F-2 Panthers, F-9F-5 Panthers, F-9F-8 Cougars, F-2H-4 Banshees, and then my last 400 hours were in uh, early variants of the Douglas A-4 Skyhawk, which was... A great airplane, and just just decommissioned a few years ago. It was around forever. Now, what kind of speeds did those jets attain back in those days? And you know, well, just under Mach one. Actually, the F nine F eight Cougar could exceed Mach one, but with some difficulty. Okay, they were certainly not not in any way comparable to today's uh, high performance military aircraft like the F eighteen or uh, the F fifteen. They were a lot slower than that. Okay. What about the the Sabre jet? What was that? Was it, did you ever fly any of those? Uh, the the Sabre was an Air Force aircraft. There was a Navy equivalent called the FJ three Fury, which uh, looked exactly like it. But it was beefed up for carrier use. Um, I never got to fly those. Those uh, they were relatively rare. Most of the stuff in the Marine Corps and Navy inventory was Grumman. Okay. Because we used to call them. The cast iron airplanes, I mean, they were close to bulletproof, and you could bang them on the deck in a carrier, uh, and they, they just didn't phase them at all. Of course, they were a little on the heavy side, but so what? They were rugged. 
and and they and they did their job, and that was the main oh, yeah. thing. Okay, super. Well, let's uh, let's change the subject here a little bit, and let's go to cars now. In your early days, what what got you? You were uh, you're from Switzerland. I mean, you're American, but basically, you were born in Switzerland, correct? Right. Okay. So, as a child growing up in Switzerland, uh, and let's see, you're from Zurich, right? Which is yeah. one of the larger cities there. Bern, Bern being the capital. By the way, I forgot to say, Guten Abend, mein Herr. Wie geht es Ihnen? You know, <laughs> uh, at any rate, that's for our friends out there. Um, Bob Lutz speaks fluent German, and you speak uh, f- English, obviously, and then you speak French, too, as well, right? That's correct, yeah. Okay, and then I was also reading somewhere that you speak a little Italian. Now, I know you lived in uh, Luzon, which is north in the north side of uh, Lake Geneva, or Gemfase, as we yeah. say in Europe. Uh-huh. Um, so, But that's a French side, so I can understand that, but how come, where'd you learn, how come you had to learn Italian? Well, you had to take you had to take some in school. Okay. And uh. besides, it's just the way I'm learning Spanish here in the states from uh, multilingual labels on products. So I, I now know what piso mojado means. And when I look at a can of Raid, it says mata el nido entero. <laughs> so, so I'm soaking it up, and that's basically the way I soaked up Italian, uh, uh-huh. partially in school, and then partially from trips to Italy, and and uh, reading Quattro Porte magazine. Oh, okay. Uh, because uh, the you know you you learn the automotive technology uh, or the automotive terms, and then you learn all the verbs and most of the adjectives, and you you wind up if you speak French and English. You wind up being able to read an Italian car magazine. Now, if it was a, a magazine on medicine or geography or psychology or something, I, I might have more trouble. Okay, gotcha. Um, speaking of which, when you were, lived in, in uh, Switzerland back then, did you, did you how how what were the distances that you traveled? I mean, did you go to Germany and Italy and and France and places like that a lot? Or yeah, and uh, my my early exposure to cars was really family because. Um, my grandfather had been a very successful import-export businessman, and my my father was successful. My uncles were all successful, and uh, the the whole family had a whole batch of neat cars. I mean, we had uh, custom-bodied Delae coupes, custom-bodied Talbolago coupes, oh, wow. uh, three and a half liter Jaguars. I mean, just all kinds of. Uh, I, I, there was never a dull car in the family. Wow, and you got to enjoy all those pre-war classics too, then. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Did they have, I mean, was it prevalent to see those kind of cars roaming around the streets in Switzerland well, back in those days? Well, basically only the, you know, before the war okay. in Europe, only only the, I would say, the, the highest wage earners had cars. Mm-hmm. So the cars you saw were all expensive. By the way, there were a lot of Buicks and a lot of Fords, a lot of Lincolns and stuff, but it was all high-end cars, and American cars back in those days sold well in Europe. And uh, it wasn't exactly an egalitarian society yet. Uh, Mass motorization hadn't taken place, but for the people who did have cars, it was fantastic because you could go downtown Zurich and park right in front of the stores and so forth. Uh, So it was nice. What were the roads like back then? Uh, they were outstanding. I mean, there were no freeways, but there were. Switzerland has always had very good roads. This uh, Swiss civil engineering is probably the best in the world when it comes to uh, roads, bridges, and tunnels. Uh, they're very well done, and they last a long time, and they're glassy smooth, as they are today. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there were no speed limits. I mean, it was left to speed limits didn't come into Switzerland until 
Oh, gosh, uh, way into the 60s. Um, before, talk- before then, it was, uh, yeah, they started with some uh, sort of 30-mile-an-hour speed limits through villages, but once you were out, outside the villages, you could nail it. And uh, in those days, boy, you could get into some thrilling racing on the on the, the highways and byways of Switzerland. Oh, I imagine, with the beautiful scenery and those curvy roads. Um, were the cars back then, a lot of the American cars that wound, found their way over to Europe, were a lot of those cars... Yeah, cost- yeah, because American cars were always a great bargain. And mm-hmm. uh, what we forget is in the 30s, in the 30s and early 40s, um, America was already mass-producing cars. Uh, I mean, not like today, but we were producing by the hundreds, thousands, and even by the millions. And uh, vehicles like a Buick, a Buick uh, Straight 8... Uh, by the standards of those days, had bulletproof quality and reliability. And they were way, way, way more reliable than uh, Mercedes-Benz, which was basically a low-volume producer, or the French cars like De La Haye, De La Hage, um, Citroën, and so forth. These were all relatively low production, um, nowhere near as reliably, or nowhere near as rugged as American cars. So a lot before the war and and immediately after World War II, a lot of people <clears throat> bought high-end American cars, and very often these are hard to get. Very often, a chassis with the uh, with the windshield, front end, front fenders, and hood, and um, and then they would be taken to a Swiss special body place who would do these beautiful uh, semi streamlined convertible. So you'd have like these 38 Buicks where from the windshield forward, it was factory. From the windshield aft, it was this beautifully done Swiss custom, Swiss built custom convertible with a padded top. Uh, and they're just absolutely beautiful executions. So when I, I, I keep, every time I'm in Switzerland, I look for something like that and I can't find one. Well, that was my question, is that a lot of American cars that did find their way to Europe wound up being custom-bodied once they got over there because the yeah. crass, craftsmanship and workmanship was far superior in terms of the bodies as opposed to in the United States. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, and then um, most of the American comp- car companies, especially GM, had uh, final assembly plants in Switzerland. So oh, really? if you got um, a Swiss-built Chevrolet or a Swiss-built Cadillac or a Swiss-built Buick. Uh, I mean, the, the body fits and finishes, uh, the door closing, all of that uh, paint finish. I mean, everything was the way American cars are today, which is uh, for the last four or five years, the U.S. has been producing cars <clears throat> with uh, body fits and paint as good as anybody in the world. But we all know that in the last 30 years, they weren't. Um, but the Swiss ones were always highly sought after because they were beautifully put together. Wow. Okay, let's go to, uh, like, when you were a child. So you you're, as you probably played with toys and collected toy cars when you were a child, correct? Oh, yeah. So did you, is that what kind of uh, spurred your interest in cars, yeah, would you say? Yeah, I, uh, oh, I had an immense collection of uh, 1 to 43 cars made by Merklin of Germany. They They did some... Very beautiful um, period German cars like the aerodynamic Adlers and uh, all kinds of Mercedes convertibles and so forth. 
then uh, after the war, I got into a lot of dinky toys. But before the war, I also had a lot of Tootsie toys because Tootsie, up until the late 30s, was doing beautiful scale cars. They did like a 1934 LaSalle four-door sedan. They did a LaSalle convertible, a LaSalle coupe. I, I have all three of those in my collection. Uh, they did a 30, 37 Oldsmobile. I mean, Tootsie Toy for a while was doing uh, jobs that were as least at least as nice as Dinky Toys. And then all of a sudden, like 1940, they started going to these cheap die-cast fantasy cars that nobody would recognize and which I as a kid didn't like very much. But no, I still have a huge collection. I've still got, I would say I've got probably 75% of the one to 43 cars that I had as a kid. Wow, no kidding. That's amazing. Um, you went to, you came to the United States then when you were about, what, seven or eight years old? And, and... Uh, no, it was back and forth, back and oh, forth. Oh, was it? But okay. The period when I stayed the longest was from age seven through age 15. That was uh, 39 through 46. Okay. And then, uh, and then you went back, and then you were educated pretty much in Europe and the United States, but college, you went to Berkeley, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were talking once before, Berkeley is kind of typically recognized as a as a liberal school but well, as the you people, it was we you know you could call it the people's university or the people's republic of california university uh, and of course it was during the days of david horowitz who was uh, at the time a flaming communist huh. um now now turned arch conservative by the way and finally saw the light uh, but he was, um, I think, the leader of uh, Americans for Democratic Action and all of that stuff. Uh, I was always um, I, at these campus rallies when they were all railing about U.S. involvement in Nicaragua or something. They always needed a speaker uh, from the right to defend U.S. involvement in Nicaragua. And, and since I uh, occasionally did re- written contributions for the Daily Californian, which was the student newspaper, uh, taking conservative positions in the uh, in the letters section, I was always invited to be the speaker for the conservatives, and um, they loved to introduce me as uh, Robert Lutz, a an attack pilot in the U.S. Marine Corps, and then that would start the booing going, and then they would finish off and a student of the School of Business Administration, which of course was even worse because it made me a, a one-man personification of the of the military-industrial complex. <laughs> so, all right, so then you got your, you attained your degree from there. Was You got an MBA, right, from uh, Berkeley? Yep. And then your first job I was reading was actually not with an automotive company. My first job was basically a university job with a, with a European graduate school of business. And, my first job was academic. Okay, and then you went to the car industry. So you wound up uh, working what? Not in Detroit, but actually in Europe first. No, no, I I, I worked out of New York. Oh, okay, uh, in the General Motors overseas operations, which was in New York, and then <clears throat> along about 1965, uh, GM transferred me over to the German subsidiary Opel. Okay, I'm very familiar with Opel. My dad used to have a 1959 Opel Capitaine. Wow, yeah, that was a nice car. That was a an inline six. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. 
That Very was a nice car. At that time, in 59 or in the early 60s, that was kind of the top of the line. Then they came out with the Opel Admiral, and then they came out with the Opel Diplomat, which was, that yep. was the V8, which was cool. Yeah, which I think we would all like to have an Opel Diplomat in our in our collection because it was a, a unique vehicle of uh, German craftsmanship, German ride and handling, um, beautiful European interior, but equipped with a beautiful uh, Chevrolet 327 V8 with all of the high-performance options. Hey, right. Hey, let me ask you a question. When you were over there, did they give you a company car? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me guess. You had an Opel Commodore, right? Yep. How about a, that? Good a GSE with the... Uh, 2.8? Yeah, well, at the time I had mine, um, the, the Commodore GSE had a 2.5-liter fuel-injected engine. Okay. But the 2.8... The two was dimensionally identical. It just it was just a, a, a bore job. So I had the garage swap swap my two five out for a two eight, and I had the only two point eight liter GSE in Germany, and I had um, the wide body kit. Oh really? Uh, super wide tires, uh, a hood with a reverse scoop on it. Uh, it was a, a fiberglass hood. I had a, a large front spoiler, large rear spoiler, special brakes, and uh, it was on the Autobahn and on the, the byways of Germany. It was definitely a BMW killer. <laughs> well, let's see. Wide, the wide tires and wheels and flares, that's called Spurverbreitung, right, in German? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Spurverbreitung. Yeah, that's, uh, that's cool. Well, now, wait a minute. Now, did somebody said they made some... Yours was almost set up like a rally car then, like the road race car, like a touring car then, if you had all those goodies on it. Yeah, it looked... It, it was a, a streetable version of a Group 2 sedan racer. Wow. Was it, a two- it Actually, it was the fastback coupe that I had, but... That was a good-looking car, though. It was. It was sensational value, and that was the... I mean, there was no BMW that was quicker than that thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, BMW had... Let's see, what they have? They only had a 2-liter about at that time. They didn't have a 2.8 or anything. Well, no, what year would this be? Uh, this was uh, 68. 67, 68. So BMW had... Uh, at that point, they had what was called the Bavaria in the United States, which was the two and a half liter six. Right. But uh, that two and a half liter six was not available in their smaller cars. So if you had a, a midsize car, what you got was the two liter. Although the two liter did come in the BMW 2000 TISA or uh, Touring International Sonderausstattung. Sonderausstattung, yeah, uh, that, okay. That one was, uh, I think, about 180 horsepower. Okay. And it, it was also very quick, but they didn't make very many of those. Now, when you were at Opel, were you in marketing and sales? Yeah. Is that what it was? Okay. And then shortly thereafter, you, uh, you went to BMW. Tell us about that, how that all came about. Well, that came about because BMW had had to fire... Uh, their head of sales and marketing for corruption. And uh, they were casting around for a car-oriented sales and marketing executive who spoke German, and I was it. Okay. So I was headhunted. Now, I was uh, reading somewhere that you owned, uh, speaking of BMWs, a 2002 TII. And uh, I've had a number of 2002s. I think they're great little cars. And then you were... I had a 2002 TII... I also had a, a Schnitzer 3.2 coupe uh, 
Oh, really? A schnitzer? With a wide-body kit, uh, oh. which at the time had, it was bored out to 3.2 liters. Um, it had the uh, gold BBS wheels with super-wide tires. Uh-huh. Uh, it was black with gold sort of John Player stripes, but very tastefully done. And that thing was uh, with shale racing seats in it. And I'll tell you, that thing was super quick. Wow. Now, was yeah, that, the... it, uh, that was 275 horsepower, which was unheard of back in those days. Well, now, wait a minute. Was that a schnitzer with a four-cylinder in it? Is that what it was? No, no. That was the 3.2 oh, okay. inline six. It was the big... The big uh, the first generation of the big coupe. Oh, okay. So it was what's called the six series. Today. The six. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, the, that would have been the CS body. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. But again, with all the racing modifications, <coughs> but street legal. Well, Schnitzer built some pretty serious motors. I mean, they were big in the racing back then. They're yeah. competitive with Alpina, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Now, when you went to BMW, what year was that? Uh, seventy-one. 71? Okay. Now, you as an executive, when you work for either Ford or BMW, because like on your Commodore, on your on your uh, Opel, you got the 2.8 motor in there, and then, of course, you had a special option, you know, Schnitzer-powered uh, CS. Could you as an executive kind of spec out a car to your liking, so to speak? Did you have that latitude? Yeah, because uh, if you were if you were sufficiently senior in the company, uh, you know, you just talk to the guys uh, in engineering and say, "Hey, uh, uh, do you have any of those wide body kits? Uh, could you could you uh, could could you do one for me?" And they said, "Sure." You know, it was it was, and then you didn't own the car; it was a company car. You had to turn it back in at the end anyway. Uh-huh. Um, so you could argue that it wasn't really money out of the company's pocket, of course. And back in those days, all of those modifications um, were basically street legal. Today, General Motors or Ford would never dream of putting a wide-body modification into the hands of an executive for all kinds of uh, uh, product liability reasons, modified front suspension, um, and and when you when you do these wide body things, one downside is that you're on the front front brakes. You're going to a positive scrub radius. So if you have differential friction on the front discs, you do sometimes on brake application get pull initially pull to one side or the other, which is uh, you know would be back in those days that the engineers just said, oh by the way, it'll pull a little to one side on brake application. Just be just be prepared for that. But uh, nowadays, in the current legal environment, nobody would ever put a, a car like that into the hands of, a, of an executive, no matter how senior. Well, let me ask you this. Now, is the mind, was the mindset back then in the 60s, 70s of the German executive towards cars different than the executive in the United States? No. No? I would, one of my big surprises going to BMW, I thought, well, this is going to be wonderful because everybody's a car guy. Mm-hmm. And I got there, I found out I was the only one. Really? Yeah, everybody else was fixated on on uh, making money and minimizing capital investment, and and uh, I was I was shocked. Uh, but what happened? What happened in in the uh, in a in a, in the German company? And for instance, over at Mercedes Benz, you had uh, what was his name? I I, uh, I forget, but. Uh, at, I, I visited him a couple of times with with von Kuhnheim of BMW, and 
the conversations would go something like, um, I think BMW should stop making six-cylinder engines. This is starting to encroach on our territory. Um, we don't do a lot of four-cylinder cars. We believe that the Mercedes specialty is sixes. So why don't you guys stick to four-cylinder cars? And Mr. Lutz, I'm talking to you because I know Mr. von Kuhnheim understands these, the way we operate in Germany. But, uh, you know, you're basically American, and you think this is highly competitive. And I'm telling you, uh, I think it would be wise if you stopped emphasizing your high-powered six-cylinder cars. And I walked out of there with von Kuhnheim, and I said, what the hell is going on here? And he says, oh, don't pay any attention. You know, I just, I humor him, and I say, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, and we'll go back to Munich, and we'll do all the six-cylinders we want. But it it was fairly bizarre, I'll tell you. And, um, and the reason it worked, despite the fact that the senior management was not car-oriented, the reason it worked was the minute you got down to the level of engineering and design, that's where the passionate car people were. And management, senior management didn't know enough about it to say, oh, gee, can't you get by with a slightly cheaper engine? And, oh, my goodness, all that aluminum, are you sure that's necessary? And the engineers, if they were ever asked anything like that, would say, trust us, it's necessary. And that would be the end of the discussion. So, if you will, uh, senior management was running the financials and and giving the speeches and doing the interface with the German government and so forth and so on. Meanwhile, uh, the actual car guy culture was to be found in engineering and design. And the, the top guys didn't know enough about it to say yes, no, or, or sideways. Okay. So that's, that's why that worked. And, but what you, what you had in the States, you also had people at a senior level who didn't know what they were doing. At the same time, you had a very, very strong financial analysis and control apparatus that was constantly saying, um, we believe that these engines could be made out of cast iron, which would save us $35 on the block. The head is also scheduled to be aluminum by engineering uh, for a very minor, very insignificant performance degradation we could make that out of cast iron as well and, and save machining time and save another $15. And then senior management would say, well, uh, gee, I mean, you know, aluminum is that much? Well, gosh, we better tell the engineers to go cast iron. And that's why the, the engineering capability always resided in General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. I mean, I, I would put American automotive engineers on the same level as anybody else. But uh, they were frequently prevented from exercising their craft by a, a set of unrealistic financial constraints. Okay. Hence, and we will get to this later, your book, Bean Counters versus Car, Car Guys. Guys. Car Guys versus Bean uh, Counters. Okay. Battle for the Soul of American Business. But that's basically the theme of the book, you know. That's, that's what went wrong. Okay. Uh, when you were at BMW... Um, now, the Quant family bought BMW when, back in the 50s or something like that, right? Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, just a side note, I used to own a, well, besides the 2002s, I had uh, an Izetta, of all things, which was kind of a cool little car. But at, yeah. any, at any rate, uh, so BMW was it known... almost back and put, it, put a couple of batteries in it, and it's right back in fashion. Yeah, probably, yeah, because it's a cool little car. But BMW was best known for, obviously, their, their military, um, their motorcycles and their aircraft engines. Yeah, and, that's how it started. 
Right, so and an interesting anecdote was one day I was asked to preside. Uh, you know, the, the chairman wasn't there, and I was asked to preside over a morning beer and sausage party for a 40-year 40, 40 uh, alumnus, or actually he was still at the company. Uh, he was an hourly worker who worked in the experimental engine shop, and I um, and I, I presided and gave the speech and gave him his gold watch and his trophy and all that stuff. And then uh, when we sat down and we were having a couple of draft beers at 10 o'clock in the morning um, in a special little Bavarian restaurant thing that was right on the on company property, um, and we'd had a few, and I said, well, um, how did, what, what do you do now? He says, well, I work in experimental engines, and I, I, I machine parts for prototype engines. Oh, okay. So what did you do before the war? And he said, oh, before the war, I, I worked on airplane engines. Um, that was, that was uh, the main business. I said, oh, really? I said, maybe you can answer a question for me. I've always wondered why most German aircraft engine builders like uh, Junkers and uh, and uh, Daimler and all of these guys, why they used liquid-cooled inline engines or liquid-cooled V engines, and BMW was the only company that used these uh, 18-cylinder radial, air-cooled radial engines and 27-cylinder air-cooled radial engines like in the Focket Wolf FW-190. Now, why did BMW have this completely different design philosophy on engines. He says, oh, that's because we were a Pratt & Whitney licensee. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So we, we had Pratt & Whitney radial engines flying on both sides of World War II. Oh. <laughs> and you know what? You won't read a single history of BMW where, where they, you know, there's, there's chapters on this phenomenal radial engine that powered Germany's fastest fighters and everything, There's, you will never find a reference to the Pratt & Whitney origin of that engine. Interesting. Now, what did the Messerschmitt, the ME-109s, what did they use for engines? Didn't they use... That was a Daimler. That was uh, a Daimler? It cooled, uh, I think it was a, a V-12. Okay. All right. Now, when in the 60s, uh, late 60s and 71, when you got there, the BMW 1600... And 2002s were still in the production, and the story goes that those two, those models were the ones that pretty much saved BMW from, you know, demise, so to speak, because those cars were really popular. Well, they turned the into first a cult one car. That saved BMW from the demise was the original 2000 sedan. Okay, which which was on the drawing board when Herbert Quant bought the company. Okay, uh, but there wasn't enough money to execute the car, so he basically provided the investment to execute the car, and it it's came out first as a BMW 1800, right. then the 2000, then the 2000 Ti, then the 2000 Tii, uh, but that was the, the big Bertone-designed four-door sedan. Sedan, right, okay. Then came the 1600s and the 2002s, uh, which had originally been designed to compete with the Volkswagen Beetle and the Opel Cadet, Okay. And then they got too big and too expensive, and they had to be premium priced, which was probably a smart move. And uh, they sold at the rate of like 150,000 a year, and they were—I mean, they—they they were. You're right that that was the—that uh, was the the salvation of that was the transition from 
a small struggling car company to a medium-sized and very successful one. Because those cars did very well in the United States once they were imported over here in the 67, oh, 68 yeah, sure. period. No, the big- it was a, that 2000, 2002 was a, a delightful car. Cold car. Now, you were somehow involved with what? The transition car from the 2002 to the 320 series. Tell us yeah, about that. Yeah. When I got there, my, my guy said, uh, I said, so how's it going? And they said, well, uh, we've got a major problem because uh, we've got the replacement for the 1600 2002 exists in a plaster model, plaster, not clay, plaster, plaster, <laughs> hard plaster model. And it is so bad that we keep telling engineering that we'd, we'd really rather continue with the present one. So I went and looked at it, and sure enough, it was terrible. It was BMW's first in-house car because all of the others had been done by uh, designer Pietro Frua in Italy and and uh, were bodied by the, and the actual body engineering and everything had been done by Bertone, so they were they were beautiful cars, um, but this one had been done in house and there was no real design department. There there was it was done by engineering draftsmen. And it looked like a box. It's straight, straight glass on the sides. It was terrible. So I started in on him and said, as board member in charge of sales, I cannot accept this car. And uh, you guys are going to have to start over. And they did grudgingly. And um, and then the front end, I had him do a plan view on the 320. And I wanted the raised portion of the hood leading to the BMW kidneys standing about two inches proud of the front end of the car. And I got that from the coming GM designs. Re- remember the newts and nose and stuff yeah. like that on Pontiacs? Mm-hmm. Uh, where the, what we use, what in design we call the central identity theme. Um, you, you had the, the actual the grill surround standing, standing out farther from the hood, which kind of place the emphasis on the BMW kidneys. Right. And um, I, I, I worked with a French designer who was finally glad to have an ally in senior management because engineering kept telling them, we don't need your pretty drawings. We know how to design a car. And, of course, they didn't. So we did get a fairly decent car, but it still had these very, very stiff sides. And uh, I complained about that, and they said, well, this is what we need for greater roominess. This car, after all, this car has to be functional. And then luckily they put it in the wind tunnel, and it was so bad that the 2002 was going to be slower than the old 1600, at which point they didn't know what to do. And I said, roll the sides in, reduce the frontal area. Let's let's get the sides way in, which is why the original 320 had that that nice sloping greenhouse with a lot of tumble home, and uh, they just rolled the sides in until the drag, the aerodynamic drag was such that the car would at least equal the old 2002s, um, and that's how it went into production. So that was a force job. Uh, I actually caused the program to be delayed by about 18 months because they they fundamentally had to start over. But as you'll recall, the original 320 was a hugely successful car. Right. It came out in, what, 1976, right? Uh, No, that's 75. 
Okay, yeah, in Europe it came out in seventy five. Um, okay, cool. And then now, when you, how long were you at BMW before you three went? Three years. Three years? And then where did you go from there? Did you went to Ford? Yeah, I was hired away by Ford to be chairman of Ford of Germany. Okay. So let me guess. You drove a tricked-out Taunus GT? Uh, I, at Ford, they said, you come from BMW and you've had great cars and we've read about your 3.2 Schnitzer car. <laughs> uh, so we have fixed up a black Capri for you. Oh, three liter? With a 2.6 liter V6 with uh, turbocharging and a five-speed five racing transmission. Okay. Uh, the, the Capri racing wide-body kit. Okay. Super BBS wheels with ultra-wide tires. And by the way, uh, be careful on braking because it'll tend to pull to one side. <laughs> How and, about uh, that? That was all black, also with uh, John Player gold striping. And what happened when the, the Ford guys, before I got there, they decided, hey, we're going we're gonna to fix up. I mean, it was basically the high-performance and racing group uh, did a Capri for me with, where the goal was to make it faster than my 3-2 three, my Schnitzer Coupe had been, and they succeeded very nicely. Oh, they did? You mean the, the, the Ford? You had a 2.6 or a 2.8 in there? That was the uh, the two six. Oh, the, turbocharged, uh, you said. Turbocharging. Okay, yeah, because, let's see, they came out with the 3-liter right about that time, too, right? Yeah, but the 3-liter was a British engine. Oh, okay. And uh, it was sort of disdained uh, on the continent, and it was... Uh, and it, it did not have the high-speed reliability and durability that the 2.8 did. And then the ultimate uh, Capri engine was the German 2.6, okay. Ford and Stroke to 2.8. Okay. And, and with fuel injection. That, that, was the, that was the best of those V6s. Do you still have pictures of any of these cars anywhere? Well, I've got... Uh, An album? Yeah, I've got my Commodore... Coupe, uh, the, the Capri, I don't have any pictures of. Uh, the 3.2 Coupe, Schnitzer Coupe, about two years ago, I got a an email from some guy in Germany who said, uh, I, I have bought a wrecked 3.2 Schnitzer Coupe, black with gold stripes, and the seller tells me it was once your car. If true, I am buying it. And I wrote it back and said, it's true. Buy it. If you don't, I will. <laughs> wow. Speaking of cars now, now what do you have in your own private collection? Well, I've got a, a Cunningham C3 Vignale Coupe. Okay. Cunningham C4R uh, Le Mans Racer. A Autocraft um, Cobra? aluminum-bodied uh, Cobra, which was the car that inspired the Dodge Viper when I was at Chrysler. I've got a 41... Chrysler Windsor convertible, a 34 LaSalle convertible with a straight eight engine, 52 Citroen, um, a 72 uh, uh, Monteverdi, uh, high speed uh, 275. I've got a, uh, let's see, a, a, a 1955 Chrysler 300 with the 331 Hemi. So it's what you'd call. Um, an, an eclectic collection. Somewhere I read you have a car that used to belong to your dad, an Aston yeah, Martin? I, I almost forgot to mention it's a 52, 1952 Aston Martin DB2. Okay. Which is in fabulous condition. Now, I did mean, you... I had it totally redone according to the way it was when my dad took delivery from the factory. 
Now, was that a car that stayed in the family, or did you have to buy it back? It was gone, and I found it quite by accident at an Aston Martin restoration shop. And it was the wrong color, and it had many modifications. And and, in conversation with the owner of the restoration shop, sort of by elimination, uh, he's, you know, I said, well, this is like my dad's was, only my dad's was, wasn't green. And he says, well, if you look under the hood, this one used to be blue, too. Oh, okay. I said, well, this is like my dad's, except my dad's had a special well for your heels because my dad had very big feet, and he had trouble with the pedals, so he had this special well done for his feet. And the guy reaches into a box and says, was it like this? And I said, well, yeah. And I said, but my dad had the factory do special heavier uh, chrome steel bumpers because he didn't like parking with just the aluminum body and a rubber strip on it. And he went over to another large box and pulled out a bumper half and said, were they like this? And I said, holy mackerel, this looks like it might be my dad's old car. So he went to his filing cabinet pulled out a thick file, and sure enough, there was the original bill ticket made out to my father. I'll be done. What a great story. Was this in New York? Is that where you found it? Yeah, that's where. That's how I found it, and that's when I bought it. And um, I was able to get all of the original, actually, the original specs on uh, the uh, color, uh, exterior color, carpet color, Connolly leather color, all of that was right there, and it, it, it could all still be ordered. Wow, that's great. we got about five minutes left. Do you want to talk about your book a little bit? Okay. Uh, now, you wrote two books. The, first, the one that you, we, ever, we always talk about the uh, car guys versus bean counters or bean counters versus car guys, but how about the book Guts? What was the, the premise for that book? The, the premise of that book was uh, basically a plea for common sense. It was called Seven Rules of Business That Made Chrysler the World's Hottest Car Company. And uh, it, it basically, the theme was very similar to car guys versus bean counters, which is you've got to trust your instincts. Um, you can't do everything by market research because people will only tell you part of the truth. It's like uh, Steve Jobs said, if they had done a bunch of market research before doing the iPhone, they wouldn't have done the iPhone. They would have done a slightly better cell phone because people can't describe an iPhone if they've never seen one. So. A lot of times, uh, my, I maintain that it is the obligation of those of us who create products to come up with great stuff that the customers haven't even thought of yet. So that's one of the lessons in the book. And, uh, and then uh, I also caution, and then one of my rules is disruptive people are an asset. Uh, you will never move an organization forward if everybody is quiet and disciplined and never argues with the direction the company is going and never questions authority, uh, you're going to have a company that never changes and, and never introduces anything new. So uh, one of the chapters in the book was disruptive people are an asset. You know, you, you get rid of people who want to push and have new ideas. You get rid of them. It, it's like it's like your house is on fire and you send the fire department away because you don't like all the aggravation on your front lawn. So it, it, it had a, a number of, I think, very legitimate business lessons. But uh, basically, even though I, I had an MBA from Berkeley and at the time the highest grade point average ever recorded, I, when it comes to business administration, I am profoundly anti-intellectual. I think the 
the business schools have sold us a bill of goods by trying to make the uh, trying to make business administration a science. It's not a science. It's all about common sense, customer focus, and a burning desire to create the best product possible. If you do those things right, you're going to be successful. Let me ask you. Also, in your in that uh, in the uh, the book guts, there was a thing where you said the customer's not always right. Yeah, now, I, I I can concur with that, but let me. I would, I'd like to hear your your explanation for it. Well, that's that's basically what I said. You by going around and asking people, do you want this or do you want that, you're going to get the wrong answer. When when Chrysler did that with the minivan and and surveyed people and said, uh, how many of you would like all wheel drive at a two thousand dollar option price? 25% of people said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when when all-wheel drive was finally available on the minivan, 2% of people selected it. So this business of asking people what they'd like is hopelessly unreliable. Wow. Now, the book, uh, Car Guys versus Bean Counters, what's different about that book? What's the premise there? Well, it basically traces the decline and fall of the American automobile industry, uh, but especially General Motors, and lays it at the feet of a management that was trying to uh, constantly maximize profits as opposed to creating great products, and uh, how we were able to change that. And then I've got a whole chapter on the culpability of the federal government over the decades, as well as the culpability of the U.S. business schools who have... uh, as I, as I said earlier, over-intellectualized the relatively simple process of satisfying the customer and collecting her money. So you think if people adopted those practices, they could be far more successful in the automotive business as well as any other business that, that manufactures a product then? Absolutely. And uh, once General Motors, after my arrival in 2001, once they shifted their focus from good enough to best in class, the car suddenly became very successful. Well, one thing I will say, and this concurs, in the late 70s, 80s, obviously early 90s, the cars were pretty bad. But now, like you said, within the last decade, the last four or five years, we have built some cars, and Ford, GM, Chrysler alike, have done an excellent job with the quality on the cars. There's no question about that. Also, the characteristics and the value proposition. I mean, you buy... Uh, a Buick LaCrosse or a Buick Regal or a Cadillac CTS or a Chevy Malibu, I mean, you're getting a level of silence and refinement and power and fuel economy uh, where you'd pay, you'd, you, you can easily pay double and get a German car that is absolutely no better. Wow. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for coming on the show. We're just about out of time, and I know you've yeah. got a appointment, and I definitely want to have you back. You will come again? Sure. Okay. Well, great. Our guest this evening was Bob Lutz. Bob, I want to thank you. I know you're off to Washington tomorrow. Hopefully, yep. you'll, you'll rattle some cages down there. I want to thank you very much for tuning in tonight and listening to my conversation with Bob Lutz. Bob, thank you very much, and uh, we'll thank be in touch. Thank you very much. Okay. See you again. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Be sure and tune in to Nostalgic Video and Cars next week. In the meantime, drive carefully, stay safe, and love your family. Hi, I'm Bob Lutz, former vice chairman of General Motors, and I like listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars and Semper Fi.
Hey listeners, tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. I play some groovy 60s, 70s music and talk about far-out cars. I'll bring you up to speed on some bitch and car shows, swap meets, and vintage racing. So join me Wednesdays at 7 p.m. on the Tam Talk Radio Network, AM 1340. Listen to my interviews with special car guys, racers, builders, customizers, and collectors. We'll discuss cars, auction, values, restoration, project cars, and parts. We'll have feature cars. We'll talk about test drive reviews. And we'll include topics on boats and planes. So tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. 